Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week in episode 20, we're still wandering the desert of the Crosstime Caper, spending another issue battling Jamie Braddock on a car racing world in Excalibur number 19, Majapur Knights, originally published in February 1990. The creative team is Chris Claremont on writing, Rick Leonardi on pencils, Terry Austin and Al Milgram on inks, Brad Bancata on colors, Tom Orzachowski and Brad Joyce on letters and Terry Kavanaugh on editing. But on this Easter day, when Christ rose from the dead, may one night here through victory in arms find the grace to draw the sword and be king. We've got a pair of fabulous guests joining us this week in another classic podcast team up who I will introduce in a moment. But first, the original flavors. I am Dr. Anna Papard. I am running out of creative things to say in these probably unnecessary intros, but I'm going to try anyway. I'm the writer of essays on sex and gender and representation, a talker on this and another podcast called Three Panel Contrast and a maker of things like BAMP silkscreen t-shirts, which I haven't been making too money. Yes. Let me say that again. (laughs) And then you're like, and a maker of things like Banff silkscreen t-shirts, which I haven't made too many of lately. But if you want one, hit me up. Um, the fact I silkscreen I my own. Well, okay, Mav. So that's coming your way. The fact I silkscreen my own Banff t-shirts foregrounds my most important job as Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager. I am joined, as always, by Mav. Your turn. Hello, my name is Podcaster X. But unbeknownst to Anna, I am secretly her older brother, Mav, who ran away from home years ago when she was but a girl. But this is a secret <gasps> that I can never, never share. But for no good reason. It would somehow compromise my secret agent career. Not clear how, because that secret agent career in almost entirely entails just podcasting with her and making sure she doesn't get into trouble. I'm also a pod- <laughs> I'm also a pop culture scholar focusing on gender and race and sexuality in 20th and 21st century comics and movies and TV shows and pro wrestling and stuff like that. I teach at Duquesne University and Mount Olive College, and I'm the host of another podcast, the Vox Popcast, where we talk about all this sort of pop culture goodness. But again, this is all rich backstory that somehow seems super important. Last issue, but other than me bringing it up right now will probably not come up again and does not matter at all for the rest of this one wow metatextual intro mav i love it that's taken it to a whole other level andrew can you top that nope i'm too low energy uh if this was the song skylar sisters from hamilton i'm peggy and i just kind of come in at the end and say i'm peggy uh, I'm Andrew Demann. I'm a lecturer at St. Jerome's University, and I'm the project lead of the Claremont Run. Um, I'm Peggy. I'm <laughs> Peggy's my wow. favorite. And that, I love that part of the, that. I just I've listened to that little bit of the song, like just repeated, just going back and listen to that five seconds over again, over again, so many times. It does get in the head. I'm, I'm Peggy. <laughs> I'm just going to pretend you know what I'm talking what you're talking about because I'm a, I'm a Hamilton hater over here. Oh my god. Oh no. <laughs> no so into the show. Nice meeting you off by. My kids can <laughs> sing that entire soundtrack. I know. Okay, well I have this thing when things are super popular that I sometimes get super anti just cuz I'm sick of hearing about it. Like I never went to see Avatar for that reason. I was just like I can't. I just oh, yeah, I don't want to be part of this. That's fine. That, Avatar's that's not cool. actually good. <laughs> <laughs> People just liked Avatar. This is getting us way off track. And like, there's just going to be so many people that have hurled their phone across the room because of my, I I will say Hamilton antipathy. Anyway, Um, let's move past it and try to get to talking about this Excalibur issue instead. So we are joined, as I mentioned, by a pair of fabulous guests, the hosts of a very smart, very fun podcast called The Ex-Wife Podcast, Justin and Alicia. Welcome to the pod, guys. 
Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having us. We are thrilled to have you. So a little about Justin and Alicia. Alicia works as a dancer and choreographer and has never read a comic book before starting this podcast journey with Justin. Justin is a videographer and improviser and has read more than enough comics for the two of them. The Ex-Wife podcast is, quote, one man's elaborate scheme to get his wife into X-Men comics that's working, which is good to hear. (laughs) (laughs) They talk all things past and present regarding X-Men comics, giving listeners a variety of jumping on points into the storied history of everyone's favorite band of Mary Mutants. Occasionally, they're joined by fun X-Men related guests. And I will say off the bat that I have listened to your Sword is Drawn episode and you gave us a lovely shout out on that episode, which I really appreciated, but also that I enjoyed it so much. It was so fun, like the dynamic that you have where you're just kind of like reading yeah. the book together and responding to it. And <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a, it was great. It's adorable to listen to. Just like every episode of your show is just like it's the best concept ever. Yeah, I love it. Wow, thank you so much, Victory. (laughs) So we know that you've read Sword Is Drawn, but I'm curious. Like, have you discussed Excalibur? Sort of, is that the only time that you've discussed it on the pod? Like, what's your familiarity with the series, either of you? So that's the only time we've discussed it on the podcast in terms of classic Excalibur. We have started to dive into the current run by Teeny Howard and. Marcus Toe in the Krakoan era. I've had a little bit more experience with Excalibur beyond the sword is drawn and kind of read whatever floppies I had in my collection. And yeah, I read issue 19. (laughs) (laughs) So that's all we were asking. So that's fine. And yeah, the new what what's happening currently in Excalibur, which I actually really enjoy. I think in the beginning I was really overwhelmed. <laughs> yeah. But now I'm getting to see the you know, I'm I'm also like a big Harry Potter fan and I also like magic, so all of the magical elements I'm like, ooh, yeah, this is cool. Uh, I can get a good magic issue. There's not that much magic in this issue. Yeah, Yeah. not a good one for that. There were other ones that would have been better for that. There's (laughs) there's plenty of good stuff in here. I'm glad to hear that. Um, what about you, Justin? Like, I mean, was Excalibur something that you read growing up? Is that sort of where you're coming at X-Men comics and kind of revisiting them now? Or has this been kind of a journey for you as well? So this has been a journey for me. I've been following along with the podcast. And this oh, thank you. will be probably my first full read through. I, I really have only read a handful of issues here and there. I read the Inferno issues as relative to Inferno. And uh, I, I really just the ones that I have hard copies of, but now with Marvel Unlimited, I've been able to read along with y'all. So are you an X-Men fan like from throughout your life? Like, was it a childhood favorite of yours? Oh, yeah. Big time. The animated series was my entryway point as a lot of people, but it really grew into an obsession with the random issues that I would get from these grab bags from Toys R Us. And oh, then- <laughs> that's great. <laughs> right? Yes. And you'd have no context as to what was going on in any of the stories, but you'd get just this random sampling of this hero, this hero this story Uh, and then my uncle my godfather was very into comics he collected as a kid and every time i would go over his house he would share various stories we'd kind of just go off and and talk about comics for the rest of the night and he'd give me a couple to take home and that really started my my love of comics but what really furthered it was the the black and white reprint essential books of Uh, and so that was like a real big dive and ever since maybe middle school high school i remember riding my bike to the comic shop and just picking up the the monthlies can i ask you guys again about your podcast and sort of how your experience of doing it has been because i'm assuming part of what happens is that you rediscover these things like through each other's eyes through some of the dialogue that you have you coming at the sort of new alicia and then you sort of revisiting some things justin but also encountering some things new when you're reading some of the new comics so what's your experience been like doing this podcast in this in this format what has it kind of done to your opinion of these comics or just to to your relationship if that's not too personal of a question (laughs) yeah no that's not too personal um (laughs) we i mean we've always both nerded out about things on our own but i i i mean i've thoroughly enjoyed our journey so far on the podcast but i think there is a portion of it that is slightly dangerous because it is just really like everything in our life we're both wearing x-men t-shirts right now (laughs) we talk about x-men constantly it's working it's working (laughs) i mean i've i've really enjoyed it i'm i've always been more of like a novel reader and not a comic reader obviously before the podcast and so i will say that i i don't read books 
anymore. And I wish I <laughs> did. Um, I, because I'm just constantly like, oh, well, I'm either going to read this comic or I've also always really been into costumes and costume making. And so I always had a few, I had a couple cosplays kicking around and now I just constantly create X-Men cosplays and I can't oh. seem to stop. So <laughs> that's it. taken on a whole nother, a whole nother part of my life. <laughs> um but as far as our relationship goes, I mean, the thing that if I'm go I'm going to get deep here for a second. The Go thing that it. makes me, you know, feel so much joy in my life on a regular basis is that Justin is a person that I met at a point in my life when I was just figuring out that like being who I really was was actually okay and he's always been someone that just completely lets me be who I am. And I think that's why we click together so well. So I feel like it's just it's just taken us a step further into just being for me anyway, just being completely comfortable with who I am. And the whole X community is wonderful in that way. Like everyone is so accepting and wonderful and encouraging. And you know, like we just we we are children. And we now are just a step further into being adult children. Oh, <laughs> adorable. That's so lovely. Thank you. I mean, we'll come back to some first impressions about this issue, but maybe we'll do our little issue summary and then come back to what you made of Excalibur number 19 in particular. Um, you guys did request this issue, so I'm curious about how it how it stood up to that request, but, but we'll get to that in a moment. So we know we have lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod, but we will kick things off as always with that plot summary in which we will try to explain at least some of the logic behind the shape-shifty, dimension-bleedy stuff we've got going on in this particular issue. So, we open with Jamie Braddock hunting Kitty, whose phasing powers allowed her to just barely escape his reality-warping powers at the end of the last issue. Before Jamie finds her, Captain Britton finds him and beats the snot out of him. Or at least he tries to. Jamie seems to be hurt, then fells Brian with a simple flick of his finger and restores himself. Yet Brian's attack does do some good, making Jamie drop Widget, who makes a portal for Kitty to escape. Back at Excalibur's dimension hopping train, Nightcrawler and Alistair Stewart are still puzzling through repairs. The Dirty Angels arrive, pursued by an angry mob from the Pit Stop Hotel, which they accidentally exploded in the last issue. Alistair lets the Angels take cover in the train and sends the mob on a wild goose chase. Though the Angels are initially afraid of Kurt, they're quickly won over when he kisses each of them, dissolving them in a puddle of hearts. While this is going on, Rachel wakes up, recovered at least a bit from Jamie's attack in the last issue. She soon realizes she's still psychically fused with Megan, who's still in the vicinity of Jamie. Despite Megan's misgivings, Rachel convinces Megan to let her take control of Megan's body, arguing that they might have a chance to defeat Jamie with the power of surprise, which takes the form of Rachel's memories helping Megan shapeshift into various X-Men, complete with those characters' individual powers. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but go with it, because it means we get a glorious image of a very hairy Wolverine wearing Megan's costume. Elsewhere, Kitty wakes up in a strange house. In the kitchen, she meets the housekeeper, Emma, who tells her that she's at the Braddock Lambden townhouse, which is currently being used by Jamie, which sounds bad. Back in other dimensional Madripoor, Megan fights a mind-controlled Brian while trying to get to Jamie, shape-shifting along the way from Wolverine to Longshot to Dazzler to Havoc to Storm to Colossus and finally Rogue. They seem to be making headway against Jamie, but the Rogue transformation backfires, allowing Jamie to steal Megan and Rachel's energy. Back at the Braddock's London townhouse, Kitty realizes from reading the paper that she's arrived back in the 616. She collects some very tight jeans and prepares to go back through the widget gate to collect the rest of Excalibur, reasoning their cross-time caper will soon be over, but suddenly she sees the flash of Dazzler's energy signature upstairs. She goes to investigate and finds Jamie sitting cross-legged on the floor in his usual disconnected stupor, yet apparently controlling himself in the other dimension. Back in Madripoor, before Jamie can fully absorb Rachel and Megan, the Excalibur train arrives with Nightcrawler, Alistair, and the Dirty Angels in tow. The train lands on top of Jamie, seemingly crushing him, but also damaging the widget gate. Back on Earth, Kitty, making a wild bet that Jamie is responding to the world as a child would, assumes the tone of a babysitter from hell and orders him to bed. Much to her surprise, he obeys and the fight's over. Kitty passes through the widget gate back to the team, but only finds herself on the other side of the wall. She's stuck on Earth, unbeknownst to the rest of Excalibur, who may be stranded forever. Not knowing what else to do, Kitty retreats to Brian Braddock's house, where she falls asleep crying, watched by a scheming Courtney Ross, who's really, as we know, the evil Saturn. Nine. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun. 
Okay, so that was a lot of plot. Um, let's start with you, Justin and Alicia, for some first impressions of what you made of this issue. We're dropping you in here, Alicia, on this issue. You said it's the only one that you've read. So what did you make of this? What were some of the initial takeaways from this wild and crazy shape-shifting mix-em-up? I read it twice. And the first time I read it, I said, Justin, nothing happened. Yeah. And the second time I read it, I said, wow, there's a lot going on. <laughs> that actually so, makes perfect sense to me, actually. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm a personal big fan of a story that kind of bops around from different perspectives. So that I really enjoyed. But I really only know Kurt in a completely different vibe. Mm-hmm. So... <laughs> Kurt's like, I don't know, creepy little, I'm I'm hiding in the shadows and I'm going to kiss you girls <laughs> without telling you about it. And I'm super confident, but like not in a very charming way, I'll say. Not very suave, a little more aggressive than I think I was expecting. That was pretty shocking to me. Um, that's one thing that stood out. But I mean, overall, I enjoyed it. Definitely reading through it the second time, I was able to let go of some of the, hey, I don't really know what's happening at all, but I kind of understand what's happening so i'll just accept that's my fate and read (laughs) the story We've talked before on the pod that that's kind of a good strategy for Excalibur in general because there are so many things that the series brings up and then does not return to at all or like for 40 issues. So that's actually a good way to approach it, I think. Awesome. I mean, I definitely, yeah, the Kurt scene, I almost like want to just stop and talk about that because I'm his PR manager, as everybody knows. <laughs> yeah. I have so many feelings about this scene. I find it funny despite it being so inappropriate and like I'm really like torn up with myself about that. I mean, I think part of what goes on is that you're a little bit more forgiving of him if you have the larger context of him but if you're Mm -hmm. just like seeing him from this scene I like yeah I can't really defend the scene itself although I I do find it funny and I apologize for that (laughs) I like to just see his appeal acknowledged so it's hard for me this is a hard one for me um how about you Justin first impressions to this issue had you encountered this issue before or is this your first time this is my first time I was able to find a hard copy online and did get it in time too so we were able to read it in hand which was great this it felt like the most x-men i've seen excalibur be in Mm. the sense that it just it had a vibe of more x-men to it you know beyond just the appearance of their powers through megan it had a lot more action a lot more fight against the one big bad a lot less in terms of sex farce and the kind of zaniness that i normally know from excalibur it just it felt like uh felt like excalibur does x-men especially with uh, rick leonardi too and and that is someone that i recognize from x-men titles as well two of the things that stuck out to me in particular that i was, I was trying to gather my thoughts around uh, were the ideas of power and possession and the power shift between jamie and rachel and and you know rachel being known as this big powerhouse of the team and how she's he's basically taken out rachel and the shift of power and also the possession that he is taking over some of the characters and and the push and pull of possession between Rachel and Megan. It seemed to kind of contrast between a lot of the different character relationships. Yeah, that theme of possession is one that we sort of put a pin in from the last episode that we really wanted to talk about in this one. Um, But maybe I'll let Andrew and Mav do some first impressions first. Although I do just have to note that like, I did get a little bit hung up on that Excalibur does X-Men phrase and thinking about the porn parody version of that. And I got distracted (laughs) for a moment. But um, I love these thoughts about possession and we are going to come back to that putting my scholar hat back on although I do also like study porn parodies so I guess it's like life bleeding into art but anyway yeah exactly (laughs) only in the most professional way yes yeah Well, you know, Mav, you study sex and comics and all these things as well. But um, yeah, Andrew and Mav, first impressions of this issue. I mean, we can talk a little bit about Rick Leonardi, if you want, sort of setting up where he fits kind of in this history of comics and in the X-Men universe, because Justin mentioned him as well. And I'm actually less familiar with Rick Leonardi's work, so I'm happy to chat about him a little bit off the top. To this point, he is my favorite Excalibur fill-in artist. I mean, there's... Yeah, yeah. This is the first time throughout the... um, it gets really complicated from here on out because Davis is going to start missing more and more issues. Oh God, there's going to be so many Wozniak issues. Yeah. And, oh. and then 
and, and he's gonna it's gonna get weird and then he's just gonna not be the regular artist and then he'll come back eventually so this is not me whereas previous times where i'm like what is what is marshall rogers doing here uh, no rick leonardi slots in for me and just works in this issue i am perfectly happy with him i know who everybody's supposed to be i am able to follow the story i'm familiar enough with his style because i'm a fan of him elsewhere of course i was a fan of ron lem and it didn't work for me <laughs> when ron stepped in leonardi steps in and i remember going and was like oh it's rick leonardi well that's neat and and everything makes sense the storyline makes sense i enjoy this issue at least as a as a first read as a pleasure to read the issue i was happy how about you andrew i do love that at opening splash page too i will say yeah. with like jamie and his manic eyes and widget with his cheeks puffed out staring at him and like lockheed draped like a fox fur over his shoulder very nicely done yeah that that's not a will eisner splash page you know what i mean it's not dynamic in any way it's just jamie mean mugging and wow mm -hmm. it, look, it looks so good <laughs> Um, the one thing I'll say about Leonardi's work, and I think this is consistent, I think this might be one of the reasons why he never really got a lot of great long runs on X titles. He gets tuckered. Like if you look at the first five pages versus the last five pages, it is shocking um, how sort of... Um, the extent to which I guess he's kind of just like phoning it in at the end in order to make deadline. But when he's on, he is right up there in my eyes. Uh, and, and as Matt said, like a like a, a worthy fill-in for Alan Davis. I was really delighted to see his work here. I love those first few pages and that exchange between Jamie and Brian. I will add, you said he's tuckered. If you notice the um, anchors, Austin and Milgram, both of whom yeah. are great. And it is very, very clear to me that Terry Austin inked the first half of this book and Al oh, Wilson yeah. inked the last half of this yeah. book. If you're, if you're familiar with their inking styles uh terry austin works better for rick leonardi I, i'm a big al milgram fan but for rick leonardi terry austin works better there's like a smoothness to the sort of first half of the book we get kind of the style breaking up and getting a lot looser in the second half yeah for sure well let's start with getting into some of these character dynamics a little bit because justin and, and alicia obviously will be familiar with some of these characters but more familiar with some and less familiar with others i know like alicia you will be familiar with the excalibur cast from reading sword is drawn and we get some kind of like <laughs> powers like experiments going on in this issue which are interesting so the first thing i wanted to talk about is megan we haven't really had a focus on megan in a while and this is one of the most sort of comprehensive explorations of her powers that we've had to date we've had some experimentation with her powers but certainly nothing to this degree so i'm just basically wondering what we make of it we've talked in previous episodes about her not making good on the promise of her monstrousness necessarily how we don't see her challenging these strictures of sex and gender and beauty norms as much as we'd maybe like her to do, which is appropriate for a shapeshifter that we all have these opinions about what she should be. Um, <laughs> but does this comic kind of do any better? And I, I want to kick it to Justin and Alicia first, because you're a newbies coming at this issue and like trying to make sense of what's going on with Megan here. Did this character resonate with you in terms of the Megan that you might have seen in the new comics or the Megan that you saw in Sword is Drawn? Does this feel like a different character to you? Did she feel recognizable to you in this issue? Honestly, she doesn't feel like she does she doesn't feel like she has an identity to me in this yeah. issue. I mean, she even goes as far as to say, like at one point, she starts to stand up for herself and she's like, I didn't want Jamie to do this to me. I don't want you to do this to me, Rachel. And then mm -hmm. she just is kind of like, oh well, I guess I have to do it. Mm -hmm. And even in like the process of being each of the individual characters, you know, she she has this like back and forth about how much of them do I let be my do I let myself be before I lose myself in who they are and I just felt like I wanted her to to have a little bit more authority over the decisions like it didn't even seem like the switch from character to character like was her choice it was like she was a puppet the entire time and I feel as though like in the current books I haven't seen much of her do anything really <laughs> she's she's sort of just been in the background of what I've read so far oh we've so all I, feelings about it yeah yeah so I just like I want to see her do something that's of her own accord like I want her to make a choice for herself and I don't feel like I saw that really at all in this issue you understand Megan that's how we all feel <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. That is that's like that's actually a great summation of like yeah many of the things that we've sort of been complaining complaining about with her character I mean here you see that kind of done in a self-reflexive way where she's having to deal with the implications of not having control and she talks about that you know being something that she's very afraid of which is like good in terms of character psychology but nothing comes of that because she's 
still not in control, like you're saying, right? right. I mean, how how about you, Justin? Do you have do you have feelings about Megan? Is she sort of a character that you're familiar with? I I do know her through this title, but I don't know her all that well. I, I got the feeling from her in this issue that she plays into the idea of being what other people need slash want her to be. So being these other iterations of X-Men because it's what Rachel needs. Being the Megan that is the, the beautiful fairy creature because it's what Brian needs her to be. And I, I feel like that is true to the character that we've seen so far, but is a little disheartening because, you know, like Alicia said, and to kind of jump off that, I, I want her to do what she she wants to do. I want her to kind of have that agency and be herself. I think from my perspective, I I agree in terms of like how you guys are reading it. But for me, I actually like that. Like, I like the idea that Megan is a character that you long to do better and to have that agency. But I think it's like dramatically effective that she doesn't as long as the text is aware of it and is exploring that lack of agency. And I think we get a little bit of that here. So I kind of enjoy um, this little vignette of Megan that we get. And I think it does speak to her tragedy a little bit, exactly as Alicia was saying, right? Like that that, that scene with Rachel is kind of heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, But it works for me. Well, what do we make of the fact that it's sort of Rachel helping Megan through this? I mean, I think this would read very differently if this was a male character helping her. And I think it would read very differently if it was a character who wasn't Rachel. I mean that in various ways. Like, I mean, Rachel has this history of trauma. She has these ways that she can connect with Megan's experience. Like she has this backstory in which she had had her agency radically taken away and maybe she can have kind of an empathy with Megan on that level. It's not explored sort of a lot in this issue, but does it matter that it's Rachel? I think it should. Yeah. I, um, I think that, I think in the overarching greater narrative of Excalibur and the X-Men, it does matter. I think that this particular issue doesn't have enough space to do everything with it that need, that it needs to. You get Megan's internal dialogue of, is there even a Megan, you know, if I, you know, if I don't look like me and I'm not my powers and I'm, you know, that is interesting. I would like to know more about that. And I, and I agree with Andrew, like what's great about her is that she creates an opportunity to ask questions about powers like that. Like yeah. I, like one of my things with Megan that I always want to see explored more Megan and Mystique and any other shapeshifter is what does gender even mean if your body can be whatever and she doesn't right like so Megan changes into several male male characters here and she's more concerned with the fact that wow this is neat I have claws now I have two hearts now than she is with the oh and I have a penis all of a sudden (laughs) like it doesn't it doesn't occur to her and she doesn't have time to dwell on it fine but she does have time to dwell on the fact that she has two hearts which is an obscure long shot detail that is weird because Rachel doesn't even know that there there's an oddness of this happens in continuity wise that these aren't the right X-Men for Rachel yeah, to be. Yeah. She hasn't met three of them. Yeah, yeah she's never met. Yeah. Me, yeah. yeah, she's never met Longshot. She might have met Dazzler, but I don't she doesn't no. she certainly doesn't know Dazzler. I don't did she ever encounter her? Because Dazzler wasn't on the team yet. She doesn't know Longshot at all. Um, I have to say that I did just keep thinking throughout the sequence, you know, because we've had this interplay in the love triangle between obviously like Brian, Megan, and Nightcrawler. And, you know, we talked and we talked about Excalibur at number 15 about complicating and queering that love triangle. Megan transforming into a version of Kurt here that's possible possibly like a male-bodied Kurt and sort of experiencing his physicality would have been a really interesting place to take this. And that is not where they take it. And I just miss that opportunity. So yeah, so there's weirdnesses about it because of stuff like that. But I like seeing Megan confused about it. I just wish, I wish we didn't have to fill in so many of the gaps. Like they don't necessarily need to go the same way, same place that I would go with it. But it does get explored over the overarching point of Excalibur, which just when literally like in another 10 15 issues megan's going to start wondering what am i even but it's not the same as dealing with the immediacy of the problem right now where she just has this sudden realization that do i even exist and then she just she's just not going to think about it for a while again so that's weird to me i mean i want to come back to justin and alicia in terms of some of the other characters in this comic and kind of your familiarity with them and kind of how they read to you in this issue alicia you must be barely familiar with the character of kitty pride at this point right like whether you know her as kate pride or kitty pride or like whatever context you know her in. It's like my new favorite character, so I'm all about her. 
Awesome. So yeah, Mm -hmm. like, I mean, in terms of female characters, in terms of representation, in terms of empowerment, in terms of any of these buzzword questions that we're always asking, like, what was kind of your reaction to Kitty in this issue? Because she's got an interesting story that she's got going on here. And we can come back to some of the some of the Rachel Megan stuff when we talk about Jamie. But I was curious about your thoughts about Kitty. Did this seem like the version of Kitty that you're familiar with? I mean, it's interesting to me because I did think about the fact that in current comics when Kitty is Kate she's alone a lot or she's Mm. she has the separation from the rest of the team because of her inability to get into places so I thought that was interesting that she's alone I think for me I like when she starts to mature in the comics and she starts to take like make decisions without the influence of other people like in this from the get, she's she starts out by herself. She goes to try to stop Jamie. And then she's like, well, okay, nope. I got to go through this gate because that's the only way I can escape, you know, Lockheed burning me to bits. And then she's like, she's very interested in investigating what's going on and not yeah. going right back to going through the gate and being like, okay, I escaped. But now I immediately have to get back to the rest of the people. I like that she takes the opportunity to explore this new place and see if there's anything that she can learn from it. And just the fact that she, I mean, I do feel kind of sad for her at the end when she just goes and she cries in her pillow. Oh, it's so sad. No, no way of getting back. Oh, she's not going to see them for so long, too. Oh, God. Oh, no. (laughs) But like, just just her using, you know, the way that she reads the paper and she's like, oh, my goodness, I'm home. This is it. This is the right one. You know, her her tenacity to just like figure it out and and work on her own and not be just like panicking the whole time about how she's going to get back to the team. I think I really like her as a character for that. Yeah, she's the best. Yeah, like I mean, how about you, Justin? What do you make of of Kitty Pride circa Excalibur? Kitty in this arc, or at least at this point in the arc, I, I felt she lost a little bit of the confidence that I had been seeing in her in the first couple of issues, and that might have been the effect of Jamie's interaction with her powers and and really kind of bringing her back to this uncertainty of her phasing. I, I agree that her character senses, kind of the the intelligence that she comes and, and approaches situations, is all very much there and very much progressing but her sureness of her ability to do something and to help seems very shaken and and I, I again I would connect that to her experience with Jamie I always love Kitty and I think that that in here in her ability to continue to explore and to continue to answer the questions that she needs to this is that Kitty just her lack of confidence in her powers and and kind of being shaken from her experience with Jamie threw me off a little bit yeah and I mean we've talked a little bit before about some of her context in this series where she has a disability in this series, right? Her phasing powers are all out of whack. So she already has that hit to her confidence and she's always kind of dealing with the trauma and insecurity of that. And then when there are times when someone can touch her and affect her, that's like almost more traumatizing than it would have been otherwise since her natural state now is to be phased. So like anytime someone can affect her, like that must be so terrifying for her and you could see how that would kind of get her off her game. But I love everything you're saying about her investigating and being a very self-conscious character because yeah, because she's really the one that's sort of commenting on the action here and thinking things through and I just I love that about her does this fit into some of the things we'll be talking about on the pod before like her negotiations between sort of childhood and maturity I mean she gets put in a bed like a child right and then gets mm-hmm. sort of tut-tutted by like the housekeeper right are some of those themes coming up here again yeah I think so I, I think that's in there I think the, the biggest one that's in there for me we, we've talked before about Excalibur as this emotional support group for people with like survivor's mm-hmm. guilt and loss yeah. so having Kitty cut off off again oh, her team it's and her so family. painful yeah but it, but it really works too because mm-hmm. like for all the reasons alicia was saying like Kit- kitty's the character who can do it alone uh, and who can you know not just you know carry a team of one but also carry a book she's a really interesting character so you're giving her all this grief which is great for character building and you're setting her loose so it's kind of exciting in a really morbid way yeah well and she's the only one where it would have worked like i like yeah so again to look into the future i think it's um nine or ten issues before like it's it's a while like it's several issues where where they're not going to be together with her for a bit so you couldn't have done that with megan like there's no interesting story that like disagree no 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 i'm sorry not with this megan because they would because if in the storyline of where they're at she would just fall apart now maybe she should grow but she wouldn't have the megan that they tell the story of in excalibur would have had to been vastly different than i think where they wanted to 
go with her. And I think Rachel, same thing. Brian, I, who no one would care. Um, <laughs> Kurt, Kurt, it's maybe interesting, but I think there's more interesting to do to to put Kurt with the team. The book She's the interesting that, like one. later in the Davis era when like Davis goes all in on yeah. Nightcrawler. But anyway, that's right. not for a while. Yeah, she's the interesting one to do this in, and I the, she's the one that you can do a Kitty Pride Agent of Shield, right? You can mm-hmm. do other stories with Kitty, and I I think that works, and I think it works because at this point, you know, fifteen year old Kitty, even more so than twenty five or thirty, however old she's supposed to be in current comics, fifteen year old Kitty has that thing of yes, I know I'm technically a kid, but the fact that she understands, all right, I'm just going to babysitter Jamie Braddock. And it works. That is so great because it is just the tenacity, the tenacity of this character, right? It is just her being able to exist in a grown-up world where she is constantly underestimated. And then when that world's over, you get, you know, when the dangerous past, she has done everything she can to defeat the bad guy. She doesn't know if she saved her, her friends or not, but she she's got to believe it. And now I can just break down and cry because I am a 15-year-old. Like that's, you know, it's, this yeah. is traumatic for anybody and she's 15, but like, I love that she, you know, that she's given that moment to be emotionally vulnerable, but yeah. that she spent up until then just being, you know, up until the point that she knew that she had a moment to herself, she's going to do this thing that she does where she's just going to pretend she's Wolverine because that's what she's been doing since she yeah. was 13. She's been pretending she was Wolverine in order to get through these situations. Yeah. And just that emphasis on, you know, cause it's not that she isn't the strong character that she isn't you know wolverine in her heart or like can be this character but i mean that vulnerability of showing that part of it is a performance i mean this is a dumb like example maybe but there was this really affecting like sex in the city scene that i still think about where samantha told off this really misogynistic guy in the office and then goes in the elevator and cries and it was such a break in character for that character but that's why it was so affecting because you saw how much Mm. it was taking out of her to deal with this sexual harassment and like i mean that's not the same here because kitty's a very different character than samantha from sex in the city but still like those moments of vulnerability we sometimes have a thing with badass female characters that we don't want them to have those moments of vulnerability because that's going to feminize them in a way that's going to make them not strong female characters anymore but it's complexity right when done well she's not falling apart and like not capable of handling the thing she handles the thing and then we get to see her complex emotional reaction to the thing right does she get away with it more because she is technically still a child yeah i mean there's that too right like i mean she can have that sort of emotional you know up and down because of that too i think right but it's also like not that they're humans but it's like their humanity right like she's still she's still a person and she is still having like regardless of what x-men it is or what character it is the stuff that they go through on a regular basis has to have an insane toll on their mental health oh my god yes (laughs) able to see a character like take a moment and actually acknowledge that you know they can't just do all these things that they're doing and it doesn't affect them at all that's something that makes a character more interesting and more relatable in my opinion because I'm like okay I see you like I see you doing this thing and if even if you were just a regular 15 year old girl who suddenly got lost let's say you're you and a bunch of your friends went on a road trip and then all of a sudden you got separated from them you'd probably try to get back to them and then you would cry about it like that would happen in real life yeah yeah for sure I mean I I don't know I like I like the kind of juxtapositions that we have here like sometimes the juxtapositions in Excalibur are effective and sometimes they're not it's a hallmark of the book to like veer wildly between sort of one state of affairs and like another and we do have veering wildly between the fight with Megan and Jamie and then these domestic scenes with Kitty in the house you know like waking up and coming down to the breakfast table and stuff I like it here I think it's effective I think it is like disorienting and I think it is allowing us into kitty's interiority i don't know i don't know if people had different reactions to that but i liked it here another thing i actually really enjoyed was the moment of her saying that she can't wear like dresses yeah. and heels because they're not yeah. practical for what she's doing and there's so many times when i'm like looking at characters in costumes and i'm like how are you functioning in that so i <laughs> How are you I, saving the day? How are you doing that? So I very much appreciated her just being like, okay, these jeans are insanely tight, but they're jeans. So <laughs> that's better than the alternative. I did like that. Like, man, these are slutty jeans. <laughs> it's it, there's a There is a little bit of a limit there with the way it, Leah, because the only reason I know they're slutty jeans is because she has a yeah, level yeah, there. I know, because I that's, know. Just how, that's just how Rick Leonardo would have looked that way anyway. There's no, 
don't think he's capable of drawing like less slutty jeans and more like slutty jeans. And... Yeah, I mean, they bunch up with her sneakers. They're fine. I mean, I wouldn't without the scene before where um where Emma the um the nanny says, oh well, you know, we've only the only clothes that are here are from Jamie's conquest, so you're welcome to anything. You know, like without that scene, this is just like that. Frankly, how Kitty dresses, right? <laughs> yeah, it's just an outfit. It's just you know, Casual jeans, work. red shirt, jacket. Okay. Before we get off of female characters um well there's i want to talk about jamie as well but um so we talked in our last issue about sort of the manga influence with these characters of the dirty angels so for context they are inspired by this adam warren comic called dirty pair which is this kind of like english language manga style series um you don't have to know all of this context but i was just curious justin and alicia what you've made of their presence in this space because especially if you haven't read the last issue like were you just who the hell are these characters and what are they doing here? Yes. Yes. One hundred percent. I was I, like, are they a distraction? I don't understand. I, I went back and read eighteen after reading nineteen and got a little bit of context as to you know the the hotel that they destroyed with the antimatter gun, but was entirely thrown off as to their inclusion in kind of a distraction from Alistair and Kurt as to what they're trying to do. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, do we want to talk a little bit more about this scene with like Alistair and Kurt and the Dirty Angels like in our last um, episode? I always want to say, I never, never know whether it was a last issue or last episode because both. Um, but anyway, in our last episode, we were talking about, is this sexist? Is this not? What is this doing? And we kind of talked about it as more of a homage rather than parody perhaps. But Alicia really focused on like the problematicness of the Kurt scene. And I said that I have complex feelings about it does anybody else want to want to give a read of the scene reactions to that particular scene oh i just i'm a boy and i think it's gross i i <laughs> I, I, I mean yeah. i i there is a lot of kurt flirting that like i look the other way it's a different time it's the 80s actually it's 1990 now where we've we've moved on so um it's there's a little bit of that but also given that so much of kurt's development has been over the series to being him learning that you can't just grab a woman and just kiss her but you can grab two and <laughs> the and the fact that it works honestly in again having read dirty pair that's the kind of thing that would work on Kay and yuri and dirty pair it's the kind of vibe that works in that series kurt doesn't know that so it, it just incidentally is just kind of okay because it's a you know because dirty pair is a book written to play into rape fantasies in a lot of ways i mean it's like it, mm -hmm. it just happens to work out and but like out of context if i know nothing else if i get this issue in one of those three packs from toys r us that like <laughs> like or or if i'm just thrown into it like alicia is with no context whatsoever it's gross it's gross yeah. and, and 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 since we don't know who these people are and they don't come back and by the way when i say they don't come back not only do they not come back in this issue they're never going to be mentioned ever again in the rest of the of marvel comics from this point on this is <laughs> never going to come up again so it's just these two women that kurt kissed into submissiveness yeah just to add a little bit to that just two small points one they're seeking sanctuary so extra creepy and two kurt doesn't care which one he pairs up with as long as they have <laughs> matching genitals which is not a nightcrawler thing to me no i agree this is not a defense of the scene because i I'm going to have my own gripes about it momentarily, but it's a cartooniness of the scene that like, I'm not taking it as seriously as I would take it if it didn't have that element, but that's not a defense of it because especially it depends on the racial coding of these characters too. It's like another aspect of it that is potentially really problematic. So like, I am not defending it in any way, but like, I'm not sure what to do with it. It is the cartoony nature of it, but then it becomes like a Pepe Le Pew thing, which is like terrible. So that's not better, right? I mean, my issue with this Kurt thing that people don't get is that yeah he's a sexy character that's like my draw for this character that's not my only draw but you know I mean you know I've talked about Cla on Claremont Run before but sort of the nature of his sexiness and it being a complex sexiness that sort of plays with gender in a lot of ways that's sort of how I approach his sexiness there can be this misunderstanding that what that means is being like a Pepe Le Pew character right and we've seen his problematic flirting and other issues and it's just if the agency of the woman is not there then it's just not fun and that seems like a pretty basic concept and yet it happens again 
again and again and again with like Nightcrawler flirting stuff. And it happens with creators like Claremont that really should know better, who have written really complex, fascinating stories that have put Kurt in situations where his gender and sexuality has been more complicated. I mean, we just talked back in Excalibur 15, which I know I mentioned earlier about the queer coding of Kurt and Brian and their interaction where Kurt is in drag and then, you know, they're talking about enjoying the dance together. That's the version of Sexy Nightcrawler that I like to see. And this is not the version of Sexy Nightcrawler that I like to see. And I am so sorry, Alicia, that this had to be <laughs> your first encounter with Excalibur Kurt, which is the best Kurt and like is part of my whole mission doing this podcast. We've had so many episodes where we've had people come on that they're like, I had no idea Nightcrawler was like sexy and this was so great. And I'm so sorry that that could not be your experience with this particular issue. So apologies. It's quite all right. For me, it was more like, okay, these people don't like me, so I'm just going to kiss them. Yeah. And then they're going to like me. And I was like, I don't think that's how it works, Kurt. Yeah. Like, but somehow for you it works. And then I was like, is there some, does he have some sort of other power that I don't know about? And his kisses are magical. I or... think this is maybe where I'm like coming at it, almost wanting to defend it because I'm terrible, which is this is acknowledging Nightcrawler's unique appeal to the female gaze because whatever. And like, and I'm like, it's not a defense of it. I, I just like think that's where I'm getting like tangled up in this because every time he's acknowledged as a sexy character I do get excited about that but this is not the type of sexiness that I like to see acknowledged I understand what you're saying (laughs) (laughs) thank you you're welcome (laughs) let's talk a little bit about Jamie because we've talked about him as an antagonist a little bit before but we kind of put it to the side when we talked about the last issue where he was kind of introduced and we get a really interesting thing going on with him here which is that he's existing in the one dimension but also existing in the other dimension and pulling strings across dimensions and this kind of blew my mind and I didn't know what Mm -hmm. to make of it so I was curious again we'll kick it back to you Justin and Alicia first what do you make of Jamie Braddock as an antagonist is he like a character that you're familiar with from kind of other x-men texts or are you coming in a little bit a little bit blind with this character a little blind i i do like him in the current run and what he's doing now kind of less of an antagonist more of a i play by my own rules for my own interests and i feel like he really works in that but i i do love him as an antagonist here uh, we talked a little bit about beforehand how much does he know of what he's doing in the 616 yeah like is he is he consciously is he just aware? like i'm playing no, with he, toys he thinks he's dreaming is... right, right right and so i I think he is unaware of the chaos and mayhem that he's causing in this alternate reality and how he's affecting the real life brother and friends of his. Um, I also think there's like an interesting, you know, in the development of of him having powers or the reveal of him having powers and the fact that he's the older brother and his younger siblings have these things and can achieve these things that he can't. So, you know, just the, the stuff that he does, the evil that he is without powers and then with powers, like, is that a way for him to kind of one up and make himself known and be like, I'm important too, just because I'm not, you know, Betsy or Captain Britain, like I'm still an important member of this family. I still have something to give. And so does that push him over the edge? And I think like his his desire to just be the center of attention is what makes him an interesting character. Yeah, I mean, I like the interaction between the person that Jamie is before, who's this person of privilege who doesn't care about consequences, like becomes sort of the villain that he becomes with these powers becomes an extension of that. But something that we haven't talked about with him before is sort of themes of mental illness that are sort of bound up in this character as well. And I was wondering if any of us had any thoughts about that in terms of, I want to say that that's pretty problematic, you know, in terms of that being kind of a source of villainy and that's kind of a trope in superhero comics, but I'm not really sure what to do with it because he's evil before this happens and it's kind of an extension of that. So he's not, he's not evil because he's like afflicted with mental illness. And yet, I don't know. I was just wondering if it was worth sort of touching on. I think it's interesting here because so we we do see that alternate Jamie and 616 Jamie are linked as far as we can tell like uh, 616 Jamie is aware of what's going on in this other reality but race car driver I guess, I guess we don't know the the world number for this so I'll just call him alternate Jamie alternate Jamie does not appear to be crazy or mentally ill or deficient in any way shape or form he's just evil like 616 Jamie always had been like Jamie's a bad 
bad person, whether he has experienced trauma, whether he has experienced mental illness at all, he's a bad person. And that sort of makes it okay in a weird way because we can see that he's, you know, he is completely mentally competent in as much as Brian can tell in his in his half of the story because he's not seen he's not seen the disabled version. So I, I and then Kitty's reaction to him, at least, is not to just, like, punch him into unconsciousness or something, right? She treats him a little bit differently than that, which is effective. But, I mean, I think it still matters, too, in terms of we think of the problematicness of, you know, that we talk about with Batman, where he's just, like, punching mentally ill people in the face and putting them in a horrible asylum, which is not the best. But, um... mm-hmm. it's just... <laughs> but again, we're giving it credit because that's, you know, this show is us, like, sort of analyzing little minute differences and stuff but it's not really explored it's just the thing that i noticed that is there it's on the page you know there clearly is a difference between the two jamies in this story but he is still a villain he is still a villainous crazy person like he is still the joker you know he's he's the joker with like with ultimate power and that's in some ways less interesting than jamie braddock was before he had superpowers (laughs) yeah i can see there being an argument to be made there because i mean some of those things that we were talking about when we had the apartheid issue about you know jamie being sort of an analog to mark thatcher and stuff we're really getting that dropped sort of the more jamie that we get like in a way although he still has the race car driver thing here so it's still present but absent that colonial imperialist context it's sort of maybe getting lost a little bit well like i said in my intro the as that's why that's why i did it that way because his backstory is going to matter less and less as time goes on from this point on he's just brian's insane brother the race car driver thing does i mean the the manga stuff other than dirty pair being here the manga stuff and the race car driver thing which seemed very important like the fact that their reality was bending last issue it's barely it's not acknowledged at all here like there's no like they didn't solve it we don't know why the entire thing that was defining this reality in the cross time caper was oh my god there's nothing on television except for this global race that's going on it's the only thing that matters in this universe and it's not mentioned at all here the fact that the reality was falling apart i don't think jamie was doing that i think there was something weird going on where reality was becoming more and more manga-esque last issue that's not mentioned at all here why are the lovely angels here i don't know they just are this is a much more grounded issue so that just sort of falls away in a way that's kind of weird for me well speaking of groundedness though like i mean is that something we like or don't like as jamie about jamie as a villain like i do get frustrated with him sometimes just and i mentioned this on a previous episode you know the fact that he can do anything you know we talked about that problem with phoenix before that you know the limitlessness of her powers means you have to do these kind of shenanigans to because i mean this thing of defeating him by having Megan be the X-Men like this makes no sense right they, yeah it, and, and it never happens again why they can do this here I like I don't understand how, how do you just psychically give Megan Havoc's powers oh by the way I'm just gonna let you control the energy of a star now well okay if she can do that they should keep that in mind because it should come in handy over and over again for the rest of the series run. And it you should do that all the time. Yes. <laughs> you'd think, you'd think. I mean, I was willing to excuse it as like they were caught in this psychic bond that empowered both of them. So maybe she's getting kind of some of Phoenix's powers at the same time. And this is giving her a kind of boost that she won't have if they don't have that bond and they can't maintain that bond for like obvious reasons. So I was, I was kind of forgiven on that level because it is kind of a superhero thing that you like learn to forgive. It's the power they need it for this issue so they have yeah <laughs> but i mean is that a problem with jamie as an antagonist you know the fact that he can do anything like does that make him more intriguing or less intriguing uh, i think it's kind of balanced out quite a bit by uh, again this this state that he's in where he doesn't feel that he has a connection to reality um there is a way to defeat jamie and as we said kitty figures it out um but it's not by turning into the x-men and punching him too hard that's not gonna do it so i find i find alternate jamie incredibly boring i find 616 jamie like literally sublime he's this thing that you can barely grasp what it is or means and you don't really know what it wants Uh, and again instead of a like practical tactical approach you have to do your best babysitter voice to get him to go night night that's kind of awesome because of how terrifying that is i yeah i get what you're saying i like i I think it's going to come up again like as we see like more issues with jamie but um yeah i don't know what do you think justin and alicia any thoughts on the appeal of of jamie as a villain kind of on this level like is it frustrating that he can just do anything or is it an appeal as the want to have
have superpowers in me sees this as just the coolest power that he can just do it yeah, with yeah. anything that he wants. Uh, but it does present kind of a, a problem of how do you fight it? I think it is balanced by his lack of control over his power. I, I just as a as an antagonist to the team, I really like Jamie being the brother of Brian because they have a lot more push and pull. They have a lot more history that we don't necessarily know all of. So I think that that creates more to play with. But in terms of his power, I think they balance the potential of it with his lack of discrete control of it. And what sense are we getting about the contrast between Brian and Jamie? Because we haven't talked about that a lot and we get a lot of direct confrontations of the, with them here. And Alicia, you mentioned it a little bit in terms of the way that they, like, you know, Jamie has this envy of Brian, but then Brian's also got this like veneration of Jamie that he's learning to see was all a lie and everything. Like, how does the contrast between these characters play out either emotionally or physically because their powers are very different as well, right? And we often talk about supervillains illustrating something important about how the hero works, like either emotionally or physically. So how is Jamie a good antagonist for Brian? I think it's interesting how much Brian looks up to Jamie and how that like is sort of his downfall. Like he doesn't expect his brother to come back at him and flick him across the universe like that. So I think that kind of builds this suspense moment for like, if you're looking at it from Brian's perspective, all of a sudden he, his whole world is changing, which adds another element of, you know, excitement for the reader because you're seeing this now through Brian's eyes. And so because they have a closer relationship and their bonds are deeper, then the stakes are higher for them. And then it makes the stakes higher for the rest of the team, right? Because they're all there for each other and they all understand Brian's perspective. Like now they have these higher stakes of this isn't just any villain. This is your brother. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just some someone who we've never faced before or we are never going to have to see again. Everything that happens, everything that's going to play out is going to have implications in Brian's future in his life because Jamie is his brother. Yeah. So I think it makes, it raises the stakes a little bit, which makes it more exciting. I think it's fascinating that, I mean, so again, Alicia's picking up this with just this issue and the fact that that plays out, that's a testament to, to Claremont's writing because, I mean, that's true. It's accurate. Alicia doesn't know that this is the first time Brian has seen Jamie since Brian discovered that Jamie was evil and left him imprisoned. Yeah, you know? but he didn't like, actually know he had superpowers then because this is a right. later revelation. Yeah. Right. So I think that the fact that you see Brian dealing with that, you know, guilt, that trauma, that family relationship that is complicated between him and Jamie, that must be what makes this work because it does work. They do seem very real. There is a there is a disappointment. There is a uh, my brother's evil. I don't know how to deal with this. That kind of <laughs> goes on, especially since, you know, I, I tend to think of Brian as like, you know, a lunkhead and just not be very forgiving of him. But he's going through some very real stuff here that makes him more interesting than he mostly is up until this point in the series. Uh, I was going to say, I, I think Brian doesn't get a lot of good character beats uh, for the last few issues, but the idea of like angry disillusionment, um, yeah. that's, that's yes. a good motivation. And I think it works really well within a fraternal dynamic specifically. And it makes him more sympathetic too, right? I mean, like if Jamie is going to be this symbol of imperialist British excess, that makes Brian look a little bit better, especially when he's being put in that context of disillusionment like we do have talk about can't we talk about this like civilized human beings Mm -hmm. don't you remember what our boarding school master used to say like we have like (laughs) these hints right and then we're going to their fancy london townhouses with the housekeeper and everything right so like i mean those those hallmarks of privilege are there i mean i like it in the sense of like the solidity of brian and the fact that he's always the guy who's just busting into a place head first fists first and that's been causing him trouble throughout the series right and then we've talked before about the contrasting masculine between Kurt and Brian, but the contrasting masculinities and the contrasting power sets between Jamie and Brian are really interesting that way too. You know, one is sort of standing there pulling strings to alter reality, and then Brian's instinct is to just bust through and punch in the face, and that's not going to work here. And it makes Brian have to be sort of more thoughtful about how he's using his powers and how he's Mm -hmm. using power, right? And I think he works really well on that level for an antagonist for Brian. We've gone for a while, and we've kept you guys for a while, but like any final thoughts things that you're desperate to talk about that we didn't get to special moments that we need to spend some time on before we wrap up no (laughs) well so i i thought it was interesting that Megan is taking on all these powers of the X-Men, but they don't approach Betsy in any way. And 
you know, she is outside of the team that Rachel maybe would know along with a couple of the other characters, like Mav said. But I feel like if you're trying to throw off Jamie, having your sister show up to, to fight you would really do the trick. And I, th- yeah. you know, that that kind of caught me off guard. A lot more so. It makes a lot more sense than having Longshot. Like, I don't know why Rachel knows that Longshot exists. She's right. heard of Dazzler. She didn't, she doesn't know this Havoc well, but, you know, Havoc is her uncle. She does know Havoc, even if he wasn't there when she left. I don't know where Longshot comes from. She should at least be aware of Betsy. You're right. Um, so it is weird to not do it. I also have a problem with that entire thing because she's inhabiting. I don't know how Rachel gave her the powers, but also I think that the writers sort of forgot that writers, the artists both forgot that Rogue doesn't need to kiss people to make the power transfer <laughs> yeah. work. That's not how her powers work. That's Rogue herself. Like Rogue is not Megan. Rogue just likes kissing people. She does that because she she likes to do it that way but Megan it, I don't know why Megan's kissing Jamie and like I would really uh, they should have dealt with even more trauma that would have been that would have happened for her having to do that <laughs> yeah but there's a thing that they've been trying to do since the last issue of like Jamie hitting on Megan and, and we didn't talk about it in the last issue but they did build a sexualized dynamic there that was yeah. creepy as hell we, we had the like scene in the pit stop in the last issue where they were having a conversation over drinks and then like Megan is shifting into versions of what Jamie is thinking about and him exercising that power over her as a way that he's getting back at Brian so there was a sexualized component of that yeah 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 Yeah, we didn't talk about that we didn't talk about Megan being Brian in that scene which is similar to kind of the the Wolverine scene we have here where she's being a male-bodied character with a very hairy chest as well too right but still wearing her costume which I do think is a fascinating image although I, I again Mav said earlier I don't know that it goes somewhere in interesting with that or not one small thing that i really liked because we've talked about fight scene mechanics before i like that with jamie's power set in the battle he goes after their power sources that was cool yeah mm-hmm. that was clever yeah it's like so one of those like it is a playing with toys thing which makes sense because jamie is literally yeah. playing with toys but I mean, it's so like it's like one of those who would win in a fight things you're just like no i would turn off the stars in the universe and then have it can't access his power <laughs> exactly. which everybody knows that's where his power comes from it's like oh my god i like liked that and yeah yeah i guess i liked it i mean i thought it was like a little bit something but yeah i know what you mean which to talk about not only Rachel knows these characters and their powers, but the fact that Jamie knows how to undo their powers to yeah. the next level, which shows his power again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bothers me less with Jamie than it does with Rachel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah i think the big the big miss of this issue is that it should have been like a healing from grief moment similar to how we talked about in mojo mayhem you know bringing the x-men back to life in this psychic bond and then like having them fight jamie but it's weird because it's not the right x-men team for rachel to have that experience with so it's frustrating and the two characters who need that healing most i mean again rachel rachel was an x-men but rachel's time in the x-men at this point she was entirely an outsider she's not families with the x-men even the x-men that she remembers most are the ones from when from her childhood from the future for her so even that is weird so the people who get to heal in this moment are rachel and megan who are the two members least affected by the x-men like megan only knows betsy who we don't see and brian at least knows the other x-men and then kitty and kurt are the ones where it should really matter and they're not really present for that so there is no catharsis for either of them yeah yeah it's a bit disappointing on that level well let's end let's go on on out on a high note by touching base with the sword strokes letters page now i couldn't decide on a particular letter to highlight and i just wanted to highlight like things from like a couple of them there's a letter from liz halo teasing the uh warlord issue which had obviously been teased in a previous issue so obviously these letters are addressing previous issues of excalibur was going to be a few issues behind so liz halo says until kurt is a warlord and this i've got to see make mine marvel i hope she wasn't disappointed i doubt that she was we've also got some fun wordplay in a letter from jason campbell of melbourne australia and to the rest of the excalibur crew you're all outstanding i don't think marvel has ever done a better team and i hope the great standard will continue high praise sorry i have to say this i love kitty she's brilliant thanks for drawing her so well alan she can phase through my door anytime there's a new story excalibur in australia anyway once again congrats and until kitty becomes a cheerleader make mine marvel (laughs) (laughs) i was saying
saying that I was going to spotlight the Kitty Pride Thurstones and the letters pages, which like get more and more so as we're going along. So we're touching base with those as we go. Also some complaints about why some of the Captain Britain mythology is not discussed in Excalibur. And they're like, we're going to discuss it in a future issue. And you're like, oh boy, no, you are not. Not for many, many issues. So <laughs> anyway, we will, we will end things there. My pride broke it. My rage broke it. This excellent knight, who fought with fairness and grace, was meant to win. I used Excalibur to change that verdict. I've lost, for all time, the ancient sword of my fathers, whose power was meant to unite all men, not to serve the vanity of a single man. So, Justin and Alicia, thank you so, so much for joining mm. us. Before we go, another chance to plug all of your wonderful work for our listeners. I know you have a Patreon. I know you got awesome stuff coming up on your podcast. Where can people find you and what can they look forward to? Oh, yeah. Well, you can find us all over the internet at The Ex-Wife Podcast, which is X-W-I-F-E as in X-Men, not former wife, <laughs> and at the xwifepodcast.com. And as for what to look forward to, well, we did just finish a interview with Matteo Lolly, who <gasps> yes. is uh, one of the regular pencilers of Marauders. That was great, nice. great fun. And we are continuing with the Hellfire Gala, and I think potentially even continuing with current comics further watch out friends i'm reading comics <laughs> <laughs> but everything else i don't want to say because because i don't know <laughs> because it's a surprise for alicia until we start recording <laughs> was the kind of ex-wife title of the podcast was that supposed to be like a play on like is she gonna break up with you because of this endeavor or was that just incidental that was always a backdoor joke that you know okay. there could be <laughs> <laughs> it was more the uh the her becoming yeah. an X Men fan. Yeah. It was for my it was for my ego, so I could be the ex wife. Uh, but also, <laughs> my, my mom hates the yeah, name. She, she, she just, <laughs> the, the concept of her being the ex wife is not uh, a fun Aww. thing for my mom. <laughs> Does your mom listen to the podcast? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I think, I think she's tried a couple of yeah, times. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I do. I, I enjoy the show. So Yeah, it's a great mom, show. It, it's a great show. <laughs> and we certainly encourage any of our listeners that haven't checked it out to check it out. Thank you so much again for joining us. Yeah, thank you. This, yeah, is, this awesome. is fun. Next, in one week's time, we'll be on to episode 21, discussing Excalibur number 20, The Eye of the Beholder. It's a flashback swerve off the course of the cross-time caper, but it's got demon druids, so it's not all bad. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which you can find via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras and via twitter at gosh golly wow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you andrew and mav for another transformative conversation thank you justin and alicia for joining us aboard the crazy train thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thought for music for our truly epic theme song play us out thank you so much everyone thank you we're relatively on time today